Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. We've heard a lot about the great resignation. We've heard a lot that the COVID-19 pandemic has led people to simply resign their work and leave their work because of a multitude of factors, burnout, culture, so many things that have happened. People have just uh, prioritized their life differently because they faced life and death. So we, I really wanna, I wanted to address this and I thought that the best way to tackle this is by talking to a leader, someone who has actually led his own business, created his own business and led his own business and, and how does a chief executive officer and a business owner handle the great resignation, handle uncertainty, handle the change in culture, the shift in priorities of his or her employees? I was fortunate to uh, get introduced to uh, an entrepreneur, Samir Saab, through his brother, Tony Saab. Samir is just an amazing entrepreneur and individual. He is Lebanese in origin and he emigrated to Canada many decades ago and he founded his own company. He is currently the founder and the chief executive officer of Explorance. Explorance actually is a leading provider of experience management solution. What I wanted to understand from Samir is number one is how he built his company and the road and the path to success and be, you know, reaching the top, how difficult it is to stay on the top after you reach the top. And then how do you really handle uncertainty when you are faced with a pandemic that just happens once every century? How do you actually handle this and maintain the positive attitude and the positive culture for your people, for your employees. No one is better than Samers to actually help me and help you as healthcare unfiltered listeners understand what leaders are dealing with. So first, I urge you to explore the uh, website and learn about uh, Samir by following him on Twitter and LinkedIn. He actually writes amazing blogs. He is a true leader, and I am very fortunate to have had an opportunity to speak with him and to learn from him about managing the business in the face of adversity and in the face of uncertainty. Before I air the episode I taped with Samir, I would love for you to find the podcast any place you seek your podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, anywhere. If you like what you hear, please refer a friend or a colleague and write a brief review. Believe me, just writing a couple of lines in a small review will make it very easy for others to find this podcast and to listen to it. You can always watch these interviews by uh, following me on YouTube, on the YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And also you can visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. So without further ado, Samir Saab on Healthcare Unfiltered. All 
right, folks. Well, uh, this is this is really exciting. I've been really looking forward to this conversation with uh, Samir Saab about um, entrepreneurship, immigration, and uh, the Great Resignation, and what we have heard about the Great Resignation. Uh, the story of uh, how I met uh, Samir is actually through his brother, Dr. Saab, who's a GI oncologist, um, who has been on the show before, and you you've heard him speak about GI oncology. Um, and uh, really, I got to learn a lot about what Samir is doing, um, and I followed him on LinkedIn and, and, and followed his work. And of course, whenever I love someone and I'm impressed with someone, I have to bring them on the show so all of you can enjoy knowing more about uh, a fascinating, fascinating individual and a successful successful entrepreneur. Samir, welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered. I know how busy you are and appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule so let's Thank start you. by a quick intro, who you are and what you do currently. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, I, well, obviously, I'm a father and husband first, and I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And I've, been, uh, boots, you know, I've built a company back in 2003, which is Explorance. And our core focus has been literally to support higher education institutions, large organizations, to work on connecting those moments that matter for their people, their students, their employees, with feedback at heart, real listening, and most importantly, being able to have a tangible action plan from the feedback they capture, so they could actually help people develop, reach the goals that they want to reach, and be able to achieve what we all needed throughout COVID, which is some level of agility to, to overcome difficulties. Samer, tell us a little about you. Like, wh where do you come from, and where you are now? I know that obviously you're you're you immigrate from Lebanon. Just give us a little bit of background of who sure. you are, and how did you end up? I guess you know, as you tell us your story, how did you end up deciding on forming the company and and with this scope? Like, was there something that led you to say, "This is what I want to do"? Sure. So yes, you are very correct. I have uh, grown in Lebanon. And I immigrated to Canada in 1990, uh, looking to build a more stable future for me and my future children at the time. And I've, I've always had an itch in me to start something. So even though I did 10 years of employment straight after I graduated, uh, I've always had something in me that wanted to start something. I didn't do well following the authority of others, especially if it wasn't justified i didn't do well that's the lebanese in you right you can never <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well we always have somebody we report to but let's put it this way i have to be very convinced that what they're ordering me to do needs to be done or the punishment will be severe <laughs> enough but yes yeah so basically that was my foundation to start with now obviously i've done a lot of little things here and there and i always refer to explorance as the one company that has started working i did not shut it down because it was very interesting. I was able to associate with what it did. I was able to associate with its impact, but also it resembled a lot what it takes to manage somebody like me and get the most of somebody like me, which is the same foundation as make me feel I'm part of the decision, influence me, listen to me, act on the feedback you get from me and trust me as an adult so that I don't have to be told what to do. Actually, I'll wholeheartedly involve in what needs to be done. So it wasn't more about what is it we were selling? For me, it was truly, can I build an environment where I can develop a very unique culture, where I can liberate everybody, nobody's, nobody can force you to do anything, zero policies, 
zero politics and that we can rely purely on on how people thrive when they're liberated and trusted as the adults as they are and that's basically what happened in 2003 when i started exploring so it's been about 18 years is i had $55,000 in my savings i met four people that were willing to take half salary cuts and join that story we're building and we jumped in naively and you know we didn't know how hard it would be we didn't know what it entailed we didn't know anything and the beauty of it is because we were coming in with heart because we were believing in the way of what we're building we, you know we're here today and i hope we can continue to to influence and inspire as as the company company story continues forward so in the first 10 years before you formed the company um you were employed um yeah. and, and then and then you said to yourself i want to form my own company but i guess how did you decide the scope of the company or the services of the company is it because of your experience at work and you like what made you say i'm gonna because you have to tell us about explorance a little bit like what what sure. do you do at explorance sure. what are the services but what made you decide yes. to to do that kind of business yeah, I honestly, candidly, you know, of course, today it will be great to come and say, you know, I meant to do exactly what we do today. <laughs> the truth is, it wasn't. It was. It just felt right at the time. So while I did my jobs and I worked in, you know, maybe five companies and literally a hundred thousand employee company to a twenty thousand to a thousand to four hundred to seventy to thirty, you know, I felt the desire and I loved the freedom. And like, you know, of the smaller companies, but I remember the strategy and structure of the big ones. In parallel, I always had started something. I had started an online casino. When I started making money, I buried it right away. I didn't feel right of the way it made money. I had an entertainment software business where we sold matchmaking software. And again, the minute it started being taken seriously by the customers buying it, I ran away from it and I just got out and I didn't want to be associated with that. It wasn't the story I wanted told. Uh, so look at it more as somebody that has a desire to start something. Uh, I'm not from the software world. I'm an electrical engineer. I worked in aeronautics. I worked in telecom. Uh, Explorance is a software company, right? And I don't know how to develop. I met three people that could build software. It really was about being able to build a company that does business, treats people in the way I like to be treated, in a way that I like to be trusted. And the outcome of it was feedback because it was it was matching, right? So the premise is, you know, how, how amazing is it if we give people a voice? Because when we were given a voice, we were able to build something big. Can we do something more with it? But the scope or the scale was never even imagined. And, you know, I think every time my philosophy has been, you know, go as far as you can see. And when you get there, look ahead, you know. And I've never seen it be where it is today. You know, today where I am, obviously, I see it way more than where we're at because I can see much further and much more forward. And I think the story will continue uh, to scale up. But it's stepwise pieces, you know, otherwise it's daunting. If right away you start something, say, hey, we're going to be 500 employees. And it's nothing maybe for organizations. But like when you start with 55K, you're happy if you get to 10 employees and you survive the first two years. So basically it's building blocks. But most importantly, it was about the way we did business with our customers and primarily with our employees. That was the excitement for me. So let's talk a little bit about the business and then I want to go back to the to the employees. But the business, so um, who are your customers? 
So we typically deal with two types of customers and the objective that we have is to support people in making the right decisions in the productive part of their journey in life. So from it's referred to in the market as from K to grade, from the moment you start studying till the day you stop working. And our hope is to make sure that everybody ends up equipping themselves with the right set of skills, the right set of knowledge, the right set of competencies, and ensure that they're making the right choices. Because many times we end up in careers or in areas that don't even resemble us or make us happy. So that's the hidden piece. Now to get there, obviously, our industries that we focus on are higher education and large enterprise today. We work with about a third of the Fortune 100s. We work about you know 25% of the top 100 universities in the world serve about 1,000 customers combined. We're literally in that middle point, half of our business is higher ed, the other half is enterprise, and the way we join them is through the lifelong learner or that person that wants to be productive in their journey of productivity. And what we primarily uh, provide are solutions that help them survey, measure, evaluate skills and competencies, knowledge, needs, and expectations. So from and onboarding surveys, recruitment surveys, exit surveys, uh, competency assessments, performance management, uh, engagement surveys, and so on. And the premise really platforms and supporting services when needed to be able to allow these large organizations to be able to get feedback from every single stakeholder. You know, if we zoom in on patient, uh, on healthcare, you know, the premise really is to be able to get the complete view from your, from and about your staff, your physicians and your healthcare, you know, your healthcare practitioners and your patients and be able to have a 360 view in terms of the services that you provide and who provides the service and how do you tie all that to drive higher engagement levels and what is most important, which is the people. So you, you're, you, you have a software that is customizing surveys uh, based on the client that you have and these surveys provide them with feedback about their employees, whether it's exit uh, interviews, whether it's hiring, whether it's skill set, is that, am I? It's the foundation of it is that. Now it does more because we don't look at it in terms of, you know, first of all, it could be whatever the customer wants to measure, right? It's a productized solution. They can do what they want with it. Second, it helps them measure these touch points. Say, I want to measure, you know, why my employees are leaving me. I want to get feedback about how well are they doing an onboarding? I could imagine in the healthcare, considering COVID, how difficult it is to even do an onboarding program for somebody to come in. So they're probably not even ready joining that area, which creates other issues. And at the same time, you want to be able to connect these moments together. Because many times you're going to be able to improve your recruitment practices, your onboarding practices, if you learn from your exit surveys. Like, why are people leaving? What is it we could have done in a different place. Sometimes you get feedback in an engagement survey and you realize that a lot of people saying, hey, you know what, in our case, we plan to leave in two years. And why did they plan to leave? Because when I was recruited, I was told something, but I didn't have enough time to be trained in it. And now I'm burning out because I have to kind of learn while I'm working and stuff like that. So the premise really is not just the solution to gather feedback. I think that's, in my opinion, that's granted. But the most important, how do you take that feedback? How do you connect the dots? How do you transform it into insights? And most importantly, how do you ensure it's translated into tangible action? Because asking people for their feedback a hundred times and do, doing nothing about it, if you don't have an attrition issue, you will end up with an attrition issue because literally you're telling them, I'm just making you give me feedback, but I don't really care about it. So 
all these pieces are kind of productized in the solution to ensure that they can really commit to an insight to action pathway when they implement a listening strategy. So there is a consultative service in addition, like in other words, once you get the survey and everything, you're able to customize uh, a plan for the business that you're working with to basically address what they what they capture? Yeah, for those that need that kind of help, it's exactly what we'll do. Some other organizations are very well equipped to do it on their own. This technology or the software we provide will allow them to achieve as well. So there is kind of a productization piece, but of course, in many cases, especially when look at connecting that siloed touch points, and being able to drive this into insight, into action, a lot of time they, they would resort to consultancy services that will offer to support that. But also the productization of it becomes important. You know, in this day and age, when we look at a large organization, let's say you have you know, 50, 60,000 employees, you may have 4,000 line managers. And the only way you survive in times of difficulty is when you have agility in your organization, which means every team needs to be autonomous enough and self-reliant. There's no way you can have a consulting, an army of consultants dealing with every single line manager and trying to translate the feedback they got for their department, for their function, into insight, into action. And that's where that second piece of productization comes in to help and say, we just can actually set it up in a way that, yes, the top layer is going to come and say, hey, Explorance, can you help us make sense of what we're hearing? But at the same time, the solution itself could automatically crowdsource to managers and say, based on your company's recommendation, Explorance recommendation, what we learned from what your employees are saying, because we can literally extract the recommendation for improvement based on the feedback we're getting. This is what we recommend, Mr. or Mrs. Manager, to do. You do. And then when they get that insight, now you have 4,000 areas within the same organization doing tangible positive improvement and that's how you get the heart of that organizational agility so it's a combined approach of productization and consultancy services to be able to support the company across all these organizational layers to make drive action from the feedback they're getting i have to tell you like you know obviously i'm learning about your business and it's like i would have thought big companies have that service internally were you surprised as you were as you were growing the business, uh, I guess, about the market needs that actually they actually do need you because they don't have that? Well, it's all about necessity, right? Businesses move at the speed of necessity. So, you know, when you shift from a world where it was an employer's world, where people wanted to work in company A at any cost, their voice mattered less. It didn't matter. When you lived in a world where it's not very agile where information is not coming in your fingertips in one second. Making these 10 big decisions at the top and your five-year plan were enough to ensure your competitive nature is going. So that notion of being able to listen, act on listening, and, and scale that up downwards was nothing that was, it's not something that always was done. Now everybody's scared. Now everybody's saying, you know, there's not enough resources. How, how do we find people that want to join us? Suddenly, the feedback you leave about me in Glassdoor becomes really critical, so I have to make sure my people are happy. I don't want them to leave me. And since I can't find people, I'm going to try to find ways to upskill the people that I have so they take the top position so I don't lose my skill levels as I move forward, right? So suddenly, learning, development, listening are becoming strategic 
and critical, and that's what the market is showing today, and that's why you know Explorance is doing well. It's because we are at a time where this matters, but this is a young thing. So in general, when an organization would run, like let alone just an engagement survey, forget building a whole system of listening, they would typically take up to six months to put the information at the fingertips of their manager, the information, not the plan for what to do, what we recommend you do with it. Just telling, here's what you got. You know, if I gave you feedback today and six months later it gets to my manager, I'm gone. Nobody waits six months. You know, it's not anymore you watch, you know, you wait one week to watch that episode. If I can't binge that when I want to, I, you know, I'm going to remove my subscription. It's the same. You know, the world we live in expects speed. If I express myself, I need it translated into action fast. And other companies are moving so fast in such an agile fashion. The companies that don't succeed to really scale up their strategy of listening and providing autonomy to their teams, they're not going to keep up with with the others because it's a different game. It's not anymore top down. So while it sounds basic, you will be surprised how many people did surveys just because surveys had to be done. Nobody yeah. listened <laughs> because it's important to listen. Well, um, Samer, you're, you're picking on a sore subject because I can tell you a lot of us in healthcare, I'm not going to lie. And hey, my listeners know I'm going to be always honest. We feel sometimes the surveys that hospitals do and healthcare systems do are done just to check the box, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, um, I guess two questions for you. Number one, how do you separate real organizations who are doing something just to do it? And two, um, how much of your business is healthcare uh, entities? Because just listening to you, I can tell you we need you in healthcare big time. The culture in healthcare is really in big trouble. Yes, absolutely. And we, we see that actually from the, what we're seeing in you know, the data on the field is that healthcare is probably most affected by the great resignation across all industries, just above hospitality, which we know got slaughtered uh, since COVID hit. And it's less, it's surprising, right? Because usually most people that go into healthcare, they have a sense of mission and purpose. You're literally dealing with people and if somebody came thinking they have a problem, I comfort them that they don't, or fix their problem, it gives you something in return. I, I think the biggest problem has become more the pressure on the system, accelerating people into the function, not spending enough time to train them or onboard them. And then the pressures of social life, because now my, you know, your children are back at home and everybody's at home and you have to balance education and you know, uh, work, etc. So I think that silent thing which is uh, burnout is the biggest key, right? And burnout, inclusion, there's a lot of things, you know, do I feel that I matter. Can I, as a nurse, do something without having somebody oversee every little thing that I do? Uh, are the patients going to be appreciative? Do I have to worry about policy, politics, legal, etc.? We're adding so many dimensions. And these are not things that you can measure. You know, they're not things you're going to find as data and say, oh, you know what, 20% of my people are not, don't feel included. Employers till now didn't even feel responsible for burnout. Like, if, you, if I don't feel you're working hard, then burnout is not my issue. But burnout is our issue now because even if you don't work hard, at home you're probably tripling down and the anxiety of the, uh, of the uh, pandemic and the light at the end of the tunnel that goes on and off every two months and all that stuff. I think the problem is whether we like it or not, whether we believe the 
business or the healthcare facility caused it or not, our staff, especially healthcare workers, have an incredible rate of burnout that's justified as people. And if we don't seek out to get these insights from them and try to understand to what extent and how can we help them, is it overstaffing, is it uh, training, is it inclusion, what is it so we can address it, it's a big problem. The other aspect, obviously, is healthcare being regulated big time in terms of the patient experience now. Similar to what we've seen higher education go through a while ago. The challenge is regulation is great because it makes you start measuring. But the bad part of regulation is many institutions start doing it just so they get certified, accredited, get the rights or license to work. But at least they do it. But then you have to make put a humongous effort to say, you know, now that you're doing it, can you do it for a purpose that improves inclusion, that improves churn, that improves the skills, that improves the conditions, hence the engagement, and so on. Uh, so, you know, we do have a good portion of our business with healthcare facilities, especially on the scaling, upskilling, engagement piece. I think the the churn piece is looked at very lightly as if it's because there's pressure on the system, people are burning out, so they're leaving, that's okay. I don't think it's okay. And I think there are a lot of other factors around it that could make somebody's life better, especially that if I there is so much purpose in the segment. You know, I, I have a hard time reminding myself of the purpose in what I do. It's much easier for somebody that saves somebody's life or helps somebody feel better to connect with it, but then I have to feel appreciated. I have to feel it's not ungrateful. I have to feel that it's I'm paid well. I have to feel trusted. All this kind of stuff is going to come out of a feedback or a strong listening strategy. And if it's acted upon, I think a lot of the healthcare facilities could drive it into profitability, right? Because then what happens is I have people that are more engaged. They're working, working willingly. They're going above and beyond. They're not leaving. I have to, don't have to invest to recruit new ones and manage my brand. It translates into patients being more satisfied. It will affect your bottom line big time, and then you'll end up with happy people. So I see it as a crossover between higher ed and enterprise, and half of our, like a good part of our business on the enterprise, well, a good part, let's say 10% is healthcare facilities. On the higher ed, almost every university we work with has their own healthcare facility, their hospital, their medical school, et cetera. So the interesting part is we can start much earlier in supporting that strategy to support a very solid experience, skill, knowledge, and uh, meeting their needs level at a very early stage from when, when, you know, when, when I start as a student as well in that. So this is, again, where that journey catching you from the moment I start studying till the day I stop practicing uh, can help a lot. So, so about 10% healthcare? I would say yes, exactly. How, these are usually the hospitals or...? Well, on uh, the ten percent of our customers on the higher ed, they'll all be oh, they, yeah, yeah. facilities, right? Yeah. That's normal. And on the enterprise, it could be agglomerate, agglomeration of hospitals. Uh, it could be health-related. So it could be health science. It could be companies that do research, uh, vaccines, and so on. So basically, uh, you know, on the enterprise side, is a wider interpretation on the higher ed side is literally facilities. Simon, I want to I just go back a little bit. Um, I want to come back to how big the company has grown in terms of number of employees and so on. But um, I want to just go back a little bit as, as somebody who came from 
different country into into Canada and so on. Did you feel were there? I don't know. Was it difficult to start your own business as an immigrant? It was I mean, is Canada as a country was more welcoming to be able to um, to build a brand? I mean, were there any like struggles that were specifically different because you were not from there? I think, like everything in life, it's a balance. I truly believe that all humans are created equal. In a way, we all have the opportunity to make what we want from our lives, no matter. So whatever, you, whatever your brother tells me that he is better than me is incorrect. <laughs> I hope I would, he's listening. I would strongly assume so because it's all in your hands, right? <laughs> hope he's listening. <laughs> yeah, but, but the main premise is we all have a same shot at life, at getting where we want to get. We don't want to spend too much time to figure out where were we, how much, you know, did you live a war, did you live this? You know, if something today, I look at it and say, you know, I'm equipped more than many other entrepreneurs with anti-fragility. Because it doesn't matter, you know, something bad happens, my mind goes automatically into the opportunity and the problem. I'm not wired to do anything else. I'm not wired to bunker down. I don't believe that, you know, when there's a bad thing happening, you hide and you wait till it's done. You actually look and say, is there an opportunity in that? How do we move forward? There's always a light at the end of the tunnel if you, if you don't see it. That's the good news of it. And, you know, obviously Canada is very welcoming. Uh, it's very supportive. The interesting part is that in Quebec specifically, the, when I started exploring the entrepreneurship ecosystem, especially in tech, was literally inexistent. But they recognized it and they wanted to put a lot in it. You know, today there's a lot of tech companies that are popping from here. But I would say that's the, that's the top of the visible aspect of it, of, you know, of that iceberg. Uh, for years, uh, I've seen it there. I remember in 2003, I met one other entrepreneur that was starting something and he had a, a ink cartridge refill service type of thing, right? That, this is it. We were the only two tech ones in a community of entrepreneurs. So it was trailblazing. It's very well supported by the community. Everybody wants explorers to win. Not because I'm an immigrant, not because of anything. It's because we didn't have a lot of stories of success. We don't have the same ecosystem as the U.S. We don't have a big VC community or something. That's why I bootstrapped it for 18 years without external support or anything, because you have to. But then you have the support of doing it. So I have a double system of support. I have the people that care about me in Lebanon that are proud of what I'm doing. And then I have the local community, which has embraced me, which is proud of how far we've gone and that gives you all the energy in the world to to see another day and keep on moving forward so how big is the company now you started with four people uh in 2003 we're taping in 2022 that's 19 18 19 years yeah. how many employees yeah. do you have yeah so today we're north of about 300 uh, 320 or something oh. like that oh. we have offices in six locations uh, globally so in montreal in chicago in amman in jordan in london in melbourne and in chennai and we you know just now we have about 90 some open positions so obviously uh, you know there's we'll take almost everything that's good and that fits no no uh, problem. That comes I, wanna, our way. I wanna make sure i send my application i'll discuss that okay <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that that no, will but, be well. But that that that's great. So so you grew to six. I mean six. You have Middle East. You have Australia, U.S., Canada, Europe, and uh, Chennai, India to kind of work as another operating center 
uh, that's opposite to Montreal for development practices. So the other ones are business units for BizDev, and this one is more for operating. And they're all growing, actually, considerably. Uh, we've been a global company from day one. Uh, we've always had a great balance. Uh, we still don't do well locally because we've looked outside first. That's another game you bring with you when you're a, a child of the world. You know, you don't, you're not limited by where you are or where you live. You actually automatically see the world. Uh, so we have a very big market share in, in Australia and New Zealand and Singapore and like you name it. And there is something. So it's it's been good. Samir, who who um, like who's your competition? Like who who do you compete with? Who you know? Uh, obviously, competition is good because it it's really puts you keeps on your yeah. toes and obviously yeah. uh, make you innovate. But um, I'm I'm literally in prepare in preparing for the interview with you. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been I've been really learning about you and your company, and I continue to be fascinated. But I can't. I don't even know. Like, do you compete with consulting companies like the McKinsey's of the world and the Exxon? No. Who do you compete yeah. with? Yeah, we, you know, obviously, first disclaimer is that competition is hindsight, right? Because right now we're competing with a lot, but we're looking in very different directions than competition. Very few companies are going to compete for a long time. Uh, interestingly enough, let's say the segment we're in is popping, right? So obviously everybody is in it and all the big players have acquired companies to get into it. Microsoft is in it, Workday is in it, SAP is in it. And depending, it could be a consulting firm that wants to take the engagement as a transformation engagement, but that firm could use our products if they choose to. And if they're not, then they're competing. It could be one of these products coming in. It's a very fragmented market, which means in many cases, there are complementarity to, where if it's just a survey solution, they can use something. If they want something that's more robust and automated to automate that whole life cycle, then they would move with Explorance. If they want a company that helps them focus not just on adding more useless data, but taking that data, transform it into insight and action, then it would go and explore in this way. So it's a very big market, massive market. It applies everywhere, whether you look at patients, at customers, at employees, at partners, at consumers, at members, at you know students, you name it, there's a need for it. And it has very solid valuations on the market. So a lot of people are excited to go in it and it's addressing the biggest issue, which is if you listen to your people and understand them and upskill them and help them develop their competencies, you're going to keep them, you're going to grow them, and you're going to remain competitive. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot. But like I said, in general, and I've seen that over the years, is that as long as you're looking further or in a different direction, these are all temporary crossovers, and we're not daunted by the fact that the competition is of this scale or this size. I see every competitor as complementary anyways, because over time, that's what's going to happen. Everybody finds their exact purpose. I'm fascinated by, by this. If you can't tell, obviously, it, it's, it's really great. And um, But I then COVID hits, right? I mean, you're doing yeah. great. I mean, clearly, you're successful. You built a great company. And then you get a pandemic that happened a hundred years ago, all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, nobody was prepared for this, clearly. Um, a, how did you navigate this as the leader, as the chief executive officer of a company where the livelihood of many people dependent on you, obviously, because you employ them. How do you navigate something like this and maintain a positive spin whatever you can. I, I have read some of your blogs and I told you, I love your writing. You, when you write, it's, uh, you don't write enough, by the way. I'm not happy with that. <laughs> you should write more. I'm the one I but, have to 
No, I know. But but tell yeah, me, how do you it. how do you maintain that? Uh, I don't know. Whatever it is, I mean, COVID hit. Take me through what happens in the minds of a leader of a company when something like this happens. Absolutely. So you know, the way I look at it is the first three months and the rest, because the first three months you're allowed to be reactive as a leader. Unfortunately, a lot of our leaders have taken two years and they remain in a reactive leadership mode, which I don't know if it's even called leadership. The first three months, I had one thing on my mind, stay safe, keep everybody everybody safe. Don't let anybody think for a minute whether they're going to lose money or be fired or anything. And we know that sales and marketing is going to drop. Let us focus everything on operations and double down on our roadmap so we can be way ahead in our products at the outset and redirect everybody that had a job that was front-facing to help us improve our products and offer. So that was the first three months. I shut down the company and moved us to remote overnight two weeks before any country or city forced it. So right away, I think that must be the instinct of the Lebanese war or something. <laughs> but right away, literally sent everybody home. The beauty is we are a culture of trust. Nothing changes, you know, like the trust is built. We didn't have operations. You take the vacation you want, you self-regulate. Your manager can't force you to do something that you're not convinced you should do. So we have the foundation to test the culture at a different scale. Uh, So that was the first three months. We took a 10% collective pay cut just to be sure. We didn't want to take risk. We, you know, we've done a lot of things, but the most important thing is that there's nobody I should worry about that job. There will be no layoffs. We're in it together. We've been talking that talk when we needed you. Now that you need us, we're going to give you that back immediately. And instead of doing quarterly town halls, it became monthly town halls where every month they know exactly where we're at from a profitability standpoint, from a cash flow standpoint. Everybody knew everything. And, you know, slowly and surely when, you know, when the pandemic was sized up a bit and you start seeing a little bit what it is and what the damage of it has been and what it's going to be, you want to come back to life slowly and surely and motivate. Now, obviously, we didn't expect it to be as politicized as it gets and as polarized as it got, etc. So it made it much harder because it splits. So I have a lot of our U.S. employees struggled a lot because it came at a time also where there a lot of transformations. There are a lot of social issues as well happening. And it, it became heavier, right? And then you have to manage and navigate across all these things. And then you have the vaccinated versus the non-vaccinated and this versus that. And a company is an ecosystem of that. And how, as an employer, you're going to take stance that are business-centric, that are human-centric, and don't fall into the game of what's happening outside. How do you remain legal, but at the same time be able to give people hope? Because unfortunately, a lot of the restrictions, especially that we lived in Quebec, were inhumane at one point, just like reached a point where, you know, like you have to watch people of certain groups, you know, be at their home, be fully depressed. So I opened the office even when it wasn't supposed to. And I say, you know what, whoever has a situation where it's better for them to be here, please be here. We'll figure it out. You know, like when we want to balance that and it shift, shift added the notion of mental health and well, uh, you know, employee well-being, which even has exaggerated more after Omicron came, we're seeing that more. So what I'm seeing is the employer right now, and the biggest challenge that I'm experiencing as as a leader is where does a business start? Where does the business stop? Where does personal life start? Where does personal life stop? And right now they're extremely intertwined. And I feel there's that collective responsibility that the employer and the employee need to have to be able to 
to get through. And then one day, maybe in six months, nine months, go back and say, now can we have more clear lines? When do you start bringing people to the office? Because the problem, again, is we're so well equipped to go remote, but our culture was based on being there. And how do we make sure we bring that vibe back? Because you're not going to compete at 300 people with 100,000 people effectively if you're not there, if you're not engaged much more, if you're not committed and and just have these vibes that are coming. So I think today my biggest thing is that, you know, how do you work on the balance of the healing? How do you work on the balance of the recovery? And how do, uh, that, do we bring back what made our culture very unique, which depended on people, you know, doing an eye contact, having a handshake, talking together, having lunch together, and, you know, walking in downtown, not feeling it's a ghost town anymore. So there's a lot of things that are mixed up. And I think me as a CEO, my biggest concern was more around the emotions that people are feeling, the engagement that they have, the effectiveness of our culture that belongs on being there, and the big strategic moves that we want to make. Now, there, you know, the reality is everybody runs at COVID speed right now, which means even if you want to change the outcomes from a business standpoint, you're not going to go and force somebody to buy if what they used to take them two months to buy will now take them eight months. You just have to be more hopeful, more there, find different ways to actually create value proposition, be opportunistic, try to see what is it that's really important, where are people investing, what's going to matter more, and get there. And, you know, for me, like the biggest lesson in leadership is I focused a lot in the first three months, and actually I would say even six months on resilience, and I was proud that Explorance was very resilient. And then I observed companies that actually were anti-fragile, they actually thrived on that thing. And that's where my mind has gone the last year and a half after that. Like literally, we shouldn't just prove that as a business, we can survive big hits or as a country or city or anything. That's not something to be excited about. You should prove that no matter what hit you, you were able to take that energy and transform it into something stronger than what you had before. And my whole reflection, my everything that I do, and I think about in the cultural evolution of Explorance is around that notion is how do we become a company that when we get hit, we don't just survive, we thrive. You know what's the one of the nice things that you've said, and and I I'm paying attention to every single word that you've said. Um, you've you've actually mentioned how much you paid attention to the people, to the employees, all of these things, and I did not hear from you that you were worried about revenue, sales, and bottom line. And I'm sure you should. I mean, it's, it's business and you have to make sure that, that this happens. But but I, um, it's beautiful to hear that you focus on the people. And it takes me to a question that I want to pick your brains, Samir, about. Um, when we hear about the great resignation, me and you were talking about before we went on the air about great resignation. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, great resignation by definition is people who said, you know what? Fuck it, I'm done with this. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stay home. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, as a leader, how much do you think the great resignation was because of culture at, at the employment place and, and the workplace um, versus really what people are saying, it is the pandemic that made me decide what my priority is. Now, look, I realize it could be a combination of both. It's very mm-hmm. difficult, Some, it's not demarcated. I understand that. Yeah. 
But uh, I have my own theory. I'm curious for you as, as a leader, how much, like what do you attribute that phenomena that clearly exists, the great resignation to? I think it's, a, like you said, first, it's a very complex item. I think it's a combination of four things. One is I have choices. And if I'm working from home, I have infinite more choices. And actually, you know how somebody gets attached to a colleague of theirs or you get attached to a window, a seat, you know, a seat next to the window and gave you a nice view or a perk because you were able to park your car. All these are gone now. Literally, I can change five jobs and my quality of life at work doesn't change, right? So first thing is easy. There's demand and it's a demand where anybody could tell you, you know, you can work from anywhere. There's a danger to that. We'll come back to it in a second. The, the second part is a lot of people in very productive countries have spent their whole life working, right? And suddenly there was an event that gave them a step back of three months and they reassessed their priorities. I don't think it's employees that decided to leave company A because company A was bad because that's before COVID. I think a lot of people wanted to leave company A because the path they were taking was not a good fit to company A and they wanted to rethink it. They want to rethink the balance in their life. They want to spend more time with their kids. They want to focus on their health. They want to reassess where they're heading. So that's the second one. The third one is the burnout. So you go home and where everything is structured in North American society, where you know, like you have the time where you drop the kids to school or daycare, whatever it is, there's the time for you, there's the time for golf, there's the time for this, they have your travel, Everything is so structured nicely, but it's so optimized, similar to the healthcare system, by the way, because it's so optimized to perfection that a little imbalance that came broke it. And then what happens when you have millions of emotions, you're going to try to pin it on something. A lot of people have decided it's the work, it's that job, it's that company. And hence, it created, it created that movement. So these are, for me, the top three. Uh, the... Fourth is obviously organizations struggling with figuring out that balance of where do I start and where do I stop? Is inclusion my problem or your problem? Is burnout when it's caused by your life my problem or your problem, right? And a lot of employers reacted late in that shift in general. So you got those four things. And obviously it's a phenomenon that I don't think is very stoppable. My view on this is simple. Don't obsess about the people that leave. Celebrate the ones that stay, that are here. And when you do that, you stop the defensive approach of saying, I don't want to lose 10. So I'm going to throw in all these person, increase everything and do everything so they don't leave. And by the way, they're not leaving. They're leaving for different reasons, right? Or you celebrate your people you have and you start understanding them. And you start understanding that in this day and age, you need to think of the well-being of an employee. You need to worry about them if they're burned out. Even if the burnout happened because of something they experience at home that has nothing to do with work, you need to be, it's a partnership now. So that, that part. And then on the flip side, uh, that I think on the remote work, which is very important for people to realize it, it's great because it gives you options. The risk, it also gives employers options. And suddenly outsourcing jobs to less, less expensive places becomes 10 times easier as well and much more accepted as well. So, and then suddenly the employment market by dynamics will change. And then you're gonna start seeing uh, available people and then you're gonna see less uh, 
less choices there. And then when there are less choices, then you normalize the thing. So I really think we're going through a phase. I'm not too worried about it. You know, we are in Canada, we are number one employer by great place to work uh, in 2021. So we do really well. I saw that. I Congratulations. The, yeah. Congratulations. I want to hold on. I want to make sure listeners yeah. heard that because you're just glancing on this part because you're modest yeah. and, and humble. You were well, voted as number one best place to work in Canada in 2021. Yeah. But we still lost 55 people, right? So what I was going to get to is that there are phenomenons where you can control so much and we need to make sure that we're focusing on the future. Everybody should be focusing on the future. What happened? Why it happened? Am I going to have Omicron divided by two or divided by four? It's gonna, it doesn't matter. At the end of it, there will be a day where everything's okay, that this will be a distant memory. And those that were able to look the forward, the further possible forward are going to be the ones that thrive from it because they started moving faster and they didn't wait yeah. till everything was sure in front of their game. And that applies to employees, that applies to companies, that applies to cities, to so, states, so to countries, have, and so on. You have to have that culture in, in, in your employment, in your place in employment that really fosters a lot of these things. And, uh, and you know, one of my favorite saying is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Like if you don't have the right culture, it's very difficult to maintain that strategy. Um, um, well, how how do you? I mean, how, how did you build it? Do you build a, a culture just it just organic, or do you do you try to enforce or apply certain things of your beliefs into your employees? Well, obviously, we're an age of differentiation, right? Every organization today needs to have its own DNA to be particularly attractive to employees. If everybody offered the same thing, if everybody acted in the same way. Uh, you know, how do you compete in the talent market? So I strongly believe that culture doesn't just eat strategy. If you don't have a commitment to a differentiated culture, you suck at strategy because that's the most strategic thing you can do is to build an environment that makes it easier to attract talent, to retain talent, to grow talent, to engage your talent and boost their productivity. And in my experience, and that was easy for me, it was really modeled on a human-centered model. I saw, you know, I, I don't, I never forget, you know, there was a time before we liberated the employees in 2013, where we had policies like everybody else. And I had one of my administrators literally wasting her time on December 26 and calling me at home to tell me that there were two people that didn't show up to work, but they didn't submit their, their uh, vacation request. And that for me was the awakening. The amount of time that middle management waste on administration, all this silly paperwork to come and tell me how many days off you're allowed to take and complete the form and even be able to predict your sickness so you can use your sick days. And then at the same time, we're an employer that comes and asks people to work more. So I go and I say, hey, can you please work 15 hours a day for the next two weeks? But if you want to take a day off, complete the form. So my mind went into three things. You remove the management uh, overhead administrative layer. You turn your manager into having to develop the power of influence rather than authority. So it makes them more efficient because influence includes inclusion because I make you do something you believe in. You can do it 10 times better, right? And then I will be able to get more out of you. And actually the first few years we implemented it, we had to force people to take time off. I literally had two shutdowns every year to min to ensure that people take two weeks off in a year minimum 
because nobody was taking time off anymore because you gave it to them. I said, you do what you want. Take six weeks if you want. Take four weeks. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. I'm not judging you. Just make sure that you're doing what it takes. Takes the best interest of your colleagues in mind. Takes the best interest of your customers. And we're friends. And I think then it developed into something that's powerful. I've seen the results with engagement, with the results, with the churn. I think it took us, you know, the first 10 years, we didn't lose an employee, right? So it's a lot of things that build out around that. And, you know, today it's a very foundational part of how we do things. There is a balance between freedom and entitlement. That's always a balance we have to walk very thinly. Uh, and obviously, you know, this is an act where, you know, as the company grows, as the company professionalizes, uh, there are choices to be made, but I think the foundation is very solid in terms of people that work here know what they need to do without us having to tell them. And I think, ironically, when I look at the pandemic, I say if it was done the same way, where we were empowered as society or as people in the society to do the responsible thing, there would be much less people arguing about it, and people may have done a much better uh brought in a much better sense of social responsibility towards others because you're regulated. You know, I'm 20 years old. I don't meet anybody. Let me do what I want. Yeah. My ailing parents visited for two months. I'm not going to see anyone because that matters. And then suddenly becomes we become responsible. We become more productive, more engaged in the process. It's no different. I'm not going to take much of your time, but I do have just a couple of questions. I promise. I, I, I'll have to say when I was looking at your website, uh, I was reading the values that you put on the company. And my favorite one was the first one that you put. It says, make shit happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah. That's the most important post-COVID advice I can give everyone because we all fell in that mode of saying, you know, next week when it's over or when everybody vaccinates or when this happens, I'll start running. So that's the one sentence you're going to hear here day in, day out from me is just make shit happen. You know what? You need something done. Get it done. Don't wait for COVID to end. Just yeah, I love it. make it happen. I agree. <laughs> um, uh, Samir, my last just two questions just uh, are more a little bit have a personal flavor because, you know, a, as a leader, as the CEO, a lot of times you read about... Um, CEOs and about um, leaders. And one of the common things that you hear is it's lonely at the top. And, and I think some of it is because uh, people say you sometimes can't trust a lot of people when you're at the top. Um, it's, you know, you're in charge of business and employees and all of these things and, and, and so on. Do you think so? Do you feel you're lonely at the top? I, absolutely. And I think with COVID, it got 10 times lonely, lonelier. I'm actually worried about the future of entrepreneurship because a lot of people are going to think 100 times before they start something now with what we've experienced and the way it was handled. And I don't think it's lonely because, you know, like it's lonely because we try to protect people from the uh, from the waves, right? Because a lot of things go up and down. And the worst thing you can do, and I've tried it early stage, when I brought everybody in the company up with the ups and downs of explorance, they're not all equipped to handle them the same way with the same audacity. And over time, what you learn is you need to show them a straight line and you're going in the motions. And then it, it, there's a beautiful picture, actually. It says it all. They show an uh, entrepreneur on a lion. 
And everybody's looking from outside. Wow, look how courageous he is on the lion. And the entrepreneurs online say, how the hell did I get on this? And how did I get down without the lion mauling me? Right? It's really that. It's, it's the reality is people see your hat. You see them as humans. And the relationship, as, as honest, and we have a fantastic relationship here. Like we all, you know, whoever is here is here. And we all talk about anything. We spend time together. I play soccer with the team. I play squash. We compete. But there's still these things that you try to protect a lot of people, and in most cases, even your own family, because nobody is equipped. And in my opinion, it's not even a good thing to make people go through the roller coasters that we go through. Uh, it's a unique journey. It's very rewarding. And it takes a lot to be able to go to the top high where you think you're on top of the world. And then next week, you see yourself like, oh, my God, nothing is working. Then you go back up and down, and you have to regulate it for everyone. I think that's why. It's lonely there are not too many people that you can take on the solar coaster with you on a day to day and and them being okay with it and being able to to support you in it in that journey. So in general, that's that's the experience I've had. So what do you do for fun to make sure you don't burn out? Uh, what, what, how do you how do you um, make sure that you don't burn out? I don't know. Maybe I've been burnt out since 2003 to start with. Right? So it's hard to tell. Uh, I play soccer. I introduced workout in my schedule, but uh, it beats me up, but that's okay. Uh, my children, uh, they're my escape, right? So they're still young. I started a bit late, so I have four-year-old, eight-year-old. You know, I play at their level. You know, I, can, I don't have to be an adult with them. That helps me a lot. The escapes we do as a family with my wife, with my children are very good. Uh, so, you know, there are little things, but, you know, in general... It's the satisfaction. Like I said, if the purpose is solid, if you're proud of what you've achieved around you and the people that have grown because of it and changed, I, I used to monitor everything. Like who was able to buy a house after they joined, who got married, who did this, who did that. Right? There's a lot of intangibles that you gain. You know, this podcast is something that gives me a little bit of, you know, positive. So I think it's that collection of small things that make you feel good that you've contributed to something changing in a good direction is enough to give you the fuel to go forward and like i said when all hell break loose i just think of one thing how can i be a good role model to my kids and if i succeed to do that i have the best compass for every decision i make burnt out or not well this has been amazing really um i, I was going to ask you what's next for you but i think what's next for you is continuing to grow the company and one success to another um and, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I do expect, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'll uh, see you one day on CNBC. <laughs> we'll see about that. We'll see how that works out. But yeah, I think what's next is whatever is best uh, for next step. But I do thrive on velocity and acceleration and growth. So in general, that's what drives me. And as long as I keep on improving and being the best person to be able to head this journey, uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, otherwise, there are a lot of other funds out there. Like I said, and I don't have a problem playing with my kids. So it's all great. Uh, thank you. It's been very engaging conversation as well, Shadi. And uh, uh, I really appreciate the it's, talk. It's, it's, it's wonderful, really. I've learned a lot from you. I'm very grateful for your time. Samir Saab, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Shadi. It's a pleasure.
Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. And I appreciate your support and uh, to take some time and listen to this podcast and to learn more about leadership, about uh, facing adversity, about what can we actually do when we are faced with pandemics, with disasters, and just keep the attitude that we want for our employees. Uh, I appreciate your support. I appreciate um, uh, you letting me know how well we are doing on healthcare unfiltered. I also want you to um, rate the podcast if you have time and refer a friend or a colleague to the podcast. Let me know how I'm doing. You could direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You could email me Shadi Nabhan OO at Outlook.com. And you could certainly visit my website and check everything on YouTube, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. If you are a loyal listener and if you're listening, then you are. Let me know and direct message me on Twitter your address so I can send you a t-shirt, one of the famous healthcare unfiltered t-shirts that you can wear when you're exercising. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying I really like by Alexander the Great. I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Until next time, take care.